and welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people. We're known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Blaze Bryant. I'm Bria Barthel. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley talking with Bob Cohen of Citizen Action about the advocacy group's concerns regarding New York State's Climate Action Council's upcoming plan outlining the scope of the council's work. Then Moses Nagel reports on the December 5th meeting of the Albany Common Council. Later on, my co-host Blaze Bryant talks with Julie Farrer of the New York Caring Majority about the push to get fair pay for home care workers. After that, Mark returns with a 2021 archive piece about how the group Building Blocks Together assists low-income individuals and communities such as the South End of Albany and other communities usually redlined by banks in buying and rehabbing homes. Finally, Retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson is not available for our usual weekly chat, but Zena Bazila Hickey brings us a recording of the candle lighting ceremony at the end of the sanctuary's community holiday celebration held this past Saturday. But first, here are a few headlines. Thank you very much, Bria. Flu cases are on the rise, according to the New York State Department of Health. They are reporting that the week ending December 3rd, there were 44,000 cases. This time last year, there were just 2,800 in Albany County. They are reporting about 1,260 cases as of right now. A Georgia man has been arrested after a large fight in Albany with nearly 60 people involved. The event happened Sunday morning around 1.30 on Ontario Street between Western Avenue and State Street. Luis Romero allegedly pulled a handgun out of his bag and is currently being held at the Albany County Jail. Our final headline is state, uh, state health officials are saying fentanyl is being found in illegal drugs such as heroin and cocaine. The deadly substance of fentanyl can be about 100 times greater than the strength of heroin and other illegal drugs. We are seeing a record high increase in overdose deaths. And that is it for the headlines here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And my trusty co-host will tell you more. Uh Hudson Mohawk Magazine is listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced entirely by volunteers, and to learn how you can contribute your time, talent, or money, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us 518-272-23. Nine O, Blaze. Thank you, Bria. For our first story, Mark Dunley talks with Bob Cohen of Citizen Action New York about some of their advocacy concerns around climate change. We're joined by uh, Bob Cohen, one of the uh, staff people for Citizen Action, has been quite active with the development of the um, state climate law, CLCPA, and now its uh, draft plan. Um, 
Bob, I understand uh, that a number of groups have come together to raise concerns about the um, process as we move towards, uh, I believe, a December 19th vote on the uh, draft plan. What, what are some of the concerns? Sure, Mark. Uh, thanks for having me. I think our concerns fall unto, under, I would say, three things, basically. One is there are ongoing concerns that have been raised all along by community groups, climate justice groups, et cetera, about things like hydrogen, um, things like renewable gas that are untested and there are better solutions. Uh, secondly, um, which I hesitate to say, but I guess I would have to say nefariously, um, they have put in last minute changes to the plan, as far as we can tell, that um, even move us backwards. And the third thing is just public participation. We had this rather elaborate process of hearings, public attending meetings, thousands and thousands of comments, and yet um, we, we will not apparently see the scoping plan unless they reverse themselves. That's the topic for our letter or th that we sent out on Monday. Um, we will not see what the uh, Climate Action Council members are voting on, which is contrary to the law and contrary to the basic notions of public participation. Yeah, I was at the December 5th meeting and one of the local climate activists came up and raised that question to me. And I did look at the open meetings law, which does says if a delivered body is reviewing documents, that document is supposed to be made available to the public at least 72 hours in advance. And I read the CLCPA law. I saw nothing that exempted this council from um, the open meetings law. You know, why has the state, you know, three years, three and a half years after the CLCPA law been so unwilling to share, um, you know, what basically is a blueprint for how they're going to try to save life on the planet? Yeah. So just one minor qualification. The law says 24 hours, not 72 hours. But anyway, it's it's still you're still your general point still holds. I have I find it uh, difficult to figure out what their motivations are or anybody's motivations. I will, you know, sort of speculate that they're very concerned about the press um, scrutiny of this and scrutiny by groups like mine and many others. And it's a little, you know, from their perspective, it's a little easier to control the uh, narrative, as they say, by just having a vote and having people not then have to scramble to read the plan uh, a few days later, I, but that then, but again, that's really just speculation on my part. Well, be... uh, you know, I'll mention is that policy wonks like uh, you and, and and myself are very interested in the details. But when the first um, you know process went through, the issue that a lot of people focused upon was the issue of whether or not they were going to ban wood stoves which you know is an issue to debate but is not exactly the most critical part of the uh you know the the the, the climate plan um but how is the legislature going to react you know to this they've been sort of sitting there not doing much for the last three years waiting for this plan and now this plan is going to come out largely written uh, i would contend by the you know the governor's staff often behind closed doors as you point out you know, will the legislature be willing to make its own independent determination on some of these, 
you know, key issues like the role of of hydrogen and how much money we're actually going to give to environmental justice communities and and how we're going to pay for this thing, you know, whether it's going to be a carbon tax or a tax on the wealthy or something they're now calling cap and invest, which seems to be wars of the old cap and trade program that we already have with Reggie, which has sort of mixed reviews. Well, um, obviously, the standard response, Mark, about the legislature is it remains to be seen. But I can say that there are some encouraging signs. There has been um, at least rumors um, that the Senate will be holding hearings on the scoping plan. I don't think that that has been absolutely decided. I certainly hope they do that. Um, and um, because I think they need to carefully look at this. Also, um, there's a number of pieces of legislation uh, last session that at least got uh, moved. Uh, in some cases, passed the cryptocurrency moratorium was signed uh, happily by the governor a couple of weeks ago. It took a while, but she did that. So I think the legislature has shown a willingness um, when it in the past on a few limited topics to get involved. And I think the inadequacy of the scoping plan will hopefully light a fire under them that they have to become much more involved than uh, they have since 2019 when the CLCPA, the climate law, passed. Now, one thing I'll just quickly note for our listeners is, is that the two key people in the legislature, the chair of the Senate and the Assembly Environmental Conservation Committee, which handles climate, uh, are not returning uh, next year. And so, in fact, um, new leadership will have to be selected. But one of the, the big issues, and, and in fact, in many ways, the one issue which the Climate Council last year spoke out on was the need to end the use of um, gas in new buildings and go to the All Electric Buildings Act. And and now the uh, council appears to be pushing that back a year while also arguing that's not really all that important since, you know, we build 50,000 new buildings a year where there's, I don't know, five or six million existing buildings. How are people feeling about this, you know, at least some retreat on the one issue which the Climate Council had spoken out last year? Well, I think it's safe to say that um, many organizations, including mine, are really concerned about that delay. It does seem to be uh, driven by a combination of uh, 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 real estate industry concerns, maybe uh, some union concerns. It's a little bit unclear. I think the union movement is sort of split on this from what I could tell, or at least ambivalent. Um, and, you know, I think really what it comes down to as a broad picture is, is that we, those of us who advocated for the climate law to pass in 2019, um, envisioned an open process. And it seems like we've had almost this mirage. We, we've had all the, um, you know, the appearance of an open process. And yet, in the last minute, industry has intervene. So it, it's really disturbing from a policy, uh, public policy standpoint, um, an open government standpoint. And unfortunately, this is far from the uh, first and will unfortunately be not the last time this happens in New York State. So what can, you know, can people, you know, do at this point to, uh, I mean, December 19th, a week away, you know, how, how do we get the state legislature, uh, Climate Action Council to actually, at least in the last month, have transparency. And also, I was a little bit surprised. It, it, it does sound like at least the DEC chair kind of 
acts as if the Climate Action Council disappears on January 1st, once this uh, climate plan is released, that he doesn't see them having a role in terms of its, you know, follow-up implementation, even though there's tons of next steps in terms of the state energy master plan needs to be updated and both DEC and the Public Service Commission have to develop various rules and precedents. That was a little bit of a shock. But what can people do in the last minute? Well, unfortunately, I mean, certainly people should uh, contact DEC, call them, call NYSERDA. But I have to be honest here and say it does seem like the state is on the track to approve it and they do have a statutory mandate. While I wouldn't say people shouldn't call, quite frankly, the focus of our advocacy is going to have to be in the legislature next year. And also with the agencies, the next major step that must be taken in climate policy in New York State is DEC has to do regulations based on the scoping plan um, by January 1st, 2024, which is Sounds like forever, but it's only a little bit more than a year from now. And we are working on plans to influence DEC, but but obviously the legislature comes first from January to June of next year. Well, thank you very much, Bob Cohen, uh, Citizen Action, and we'll continue to follow what goes on with climate. Uh, this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. As noted, the New York State's Climate Action Council will vote on their final scoping plan on December 19th. Hudson Mohawk Magazine will be running special pre-recorded programs from the 19th through January 2nd, so check your newspaper for updates. For the new, Check your newspaper on the uh, rally updates. All right, now we move on from the state to the city level. Moses Nagel reports on the December 5th meeting of the Albany Common Council. The meeting included public comments on new licenses for cannabis sales and the passing of a resolution calling for a fair share of the state funding for Albany. Last week, on December 5th, the Albany Common Council had their regular meeting. In the public comment period, multiple speakers addressed the new rules for licenses to sell cannabis. My name is Matthew Robinson. I own Essential Flowers. I'm one of the first cannabis dispensary recipients in New York. Um, I'm here today, you know. I'm here because I want you all to know that though I want to be profitable and successful, I want to make sure I give back to my community to where I'm from that raised me. It's very important to me. My whole life, I've always wanted to have an opportunity to show, you know, just because I'm a young African-American male from a disadvantaged neighborhood, doesn't mean count me out. Doesn't mean to walk past me or brush me off. Well, I am somebody and I'm important and I wanna teach and show the youth behind me that you can make it, you can be successful. You, know, you don't got to turn to street violence and stuff like that. There's other ways. I want to teach knowledge. I want people to grow and develop. It's very important for me to see that. And like I said, of course, I want to be successful. That's, it's major. And my life has changed over the last week or so. Everything is different. The state has been working very hard to pass this initiative and to move forward, to be very progressive. And we're doing something totally different from other states. You know, in New York, we're blessed 
that have seen other mistakes that the other states have made, and we correct it, and we move forward. I'm proud to say I'm from New York. I'm proud to say I'm from Albany, New York. Just to see the state doing so much to try to fix some of the injustices that you know, have occurred through history, it means something. You know, the state isn't perfect. Nobody's perfect. They're going to do the best they can, just like you guys do the best you can. Just like I'm going to do the best I can. And at the end of the day, that's the only thing we can ask for. Just do our best, move forward, stay positive, and keep going. My name is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire. I'm a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I've been practicing cannabis law for a very long seven years and legalizing in states all across this country, including Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, uh, New York, Iowa, Nebraska, and so many others. So it's, it's a great day to be here in New York. I'm a native New Yorker. I moved back to New York to do this work and support the development of a diverse, high-performing, robust cannabis industry for the state that I'm from. I am so proud of Matthew. I believe in second chances. And this is a perfect demonstration by the state of New York that we are people that believe in second chances as well. Uh, in my work, most of it has been around what I call the three pillars of excellence, which are social justice, social equity, and social responsibility. Community reinvestment is at the core of everything that cannabis can bring to communities. Uh, there's a huge economic development component, and cannabis is a plant of restoration, so it restores economies, it restores people with chronic illness, and it helps people with recovery from addiction issues. Um, with that said, I also am the COO of the Justice Foundation. Uh, the foundation is based in New York City, and we help legacy cannabis operators get into the legal cannabis market. When we speak about legacy cannabis operators, we're talking about those who were the dealers, hustlers, uh, sellers, commercializers, infrastructure builders of the cannabis industry. Our three-pronged approach to support includes one, application support, which is what we're demonstrating today with uh, Mr. Robinson, um, two, career development and a career placement, and then three, looking at these brands that have been developed in the streets and on farms that have a following and getting them licensed into licensed dispensaries. So I am here to offer my support to the Albany community, um, and I want to see more Matthews. Thank you for the work that you guys have done to get us to this point. I know uh, that there have been many conversations with legislators, with the regulators. Um, there's been a significant amount of scrutiny to make sure that we are walking the talk. And I know that you will continue to hold those who are rule makers accountable while facilitating the emergence of this new industry. Following the public comment period, the council introduced and voted on new resolutions and local laws. The issue that garnered the most discussion was the Fair Share Resolution, which called on the state to provide extra funding for Albany to accommodate the space and resources of hosting state government and its infrastructure. Councilman Anani 
introduce the resolution. I ask that my colleagues join me in supporting this resolution, requesting that the state provide Albany with its fair share uh, to provide the $15 million at minimum needed to make sure that our city can continue to operate without putting a strain on the hardworking residents and business owners of our city who already pay a great deal in taxes. As an Albany resident, I can say that I'm happy that we are the center of state government. Uh, it brings positive economic activity to our city. However, as a resident, one cannot ignore the cost of being the center of state government. Large portion of our space cannot be taxed to generate revenue needed to pay for city services because the state occupies majority of them. Tens of thousands of state workers, much of whom live outside of the city, commute into the city using our roads, our streets, and depend on our city government to maintain them all without contributing a cent to the upkeep. That cost is paid for by the taxpayers of Albany. Without the 15 million in state and capital city funding, our city faces severe cuts that will make it extremely difficult to provide the municipal services the residents deserve. Or to prevent these cuts, Albany will need to look at raising property taxes by unprecedented 15 to 20% or to go into receivership, which will cost the state significantly more than what is being requested. These are scenarios that our residents do not deserve, that our city and our state should work to avoid. Hopefully with this resolution, combined with the mayor's advocacy and our state representative's advocacy and our efforts at the local level, we can make this permanent state funding a reality so that Albany can get its fair share and continue to be excellent host to state government. Councilman Derek Johnson. If we can't have this in a permanent um, state, then maybe we need to start having conversations about a commuter tax because I believe um, they did the numbers on it and it looks like $25 million that we possibly could be looking at in commuter tax. And when we talk about programming and community centers and, and things that are near and dear to the 15 people that represent each ward in the city, I think that that would be a game changer in, in the discussion that we have with whoever's in the um, corner office. So these are things that should be brought up in that um, conversation because in other um, areas where you have this type of transient going on in communities, it's some type of off financial offset. Councilman Thomas Hoey. You know, we asked for 15 million, but we know inflation will eat away at that, and we have to come up with other ways to, uh, to increase revenue. But I do want to make a point. 65% of the property in Albany is either state or nonprofit owned, and we're not getting tax revenue on it. So that leaves us with 35% left. Now, during the last few sessions, we've been hearing that 65% of the residents actually rent in this city. So out of that 35%, 65% of that. And we're putting up all these developments where you have hundreds of people living in a building that's getting a 20 and 30 year tax break and we still have to provide the services, fire, police, roads, and we're giving huge tax breaks to, to corporations and some of them don't even exist in our area. They're from out of state, out of country. So 
Every time that you see these big buildings going up and we're given 20 and 30 year tax breaks, it's going to hit us. I mean, did we have these problems 20, 30 years ago when most of the people owned their own houses and paid taxes on those houses? I mean, it's just, I don't know. I don't have the answers, but I want us to think about things when we do allow stuff to happen in our city. The resolution passed unanimously. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. Thanks to Moses for that report. The next regular meeting of the Albany Common Council will be on Monday, December 19th. For information and a meeting agenda closer to the date, visit albanyny.gov. Thank you, Bria. Some developing news. Uh, the search for 14-year-old Samantha Humphrey has been scaled back. According to News Channel 13, there was just one boat on the Mohawk River. Now, to set this up for some context, Samantha Humphrey has been missing for 17 days. She was last seen at uh, Schenectady Central Park in the Stockade neighborhood on November 25th when she was with her or with, when she was with an ex-boyfriend who, like Samantha Humphrey, is also 14 years old. Schenectady police are saying that the 14-year-old is cooperating with the investigation. Samantha's jacket, this is from her mom, uh, the jacket was found about a week and a half ago at Schenectady's Central Park. If you are just tuning in, I'm Blaze Bryant. You are listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM in Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. Thanks, Blaze. And I'm Bria Barthel. If you like what you hear, tell a friend. Today's stories and much more can be found at mediasanctuary.org. Now, on to our next story with Back to Blaze. Right, where I talk with Julie Farrar from the New York Caring Majority about the relaunch of their of the hashtag fair pay, the number four home care campaign. Julie helped plan an event in Albany just a few days ago. Julie Farrar from the New York Caring Majority is joining me, Blaze Bryant, here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine to talk about the Fair Pay for Home Care campaign. Hey, Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Blaze. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So you have been working behind the scenes with the New York Caring Majority on the Fair Pay for Home Care campaign. What have you all been up to? Well... Uh, most recently, we well, we were having our relaunch campaign for the 2023 legislative um, session, and we just recently had uh, a relaunch event here in the capital region, 
And um, we were able to um, get together with some folks that had been involved last session and uh, do some canvassing and reach out to other folks. Because what you realize if you do um, some work around uh, home care is that almost everyone are not them that many degrees of separation away from either providing or needing home care. The vast majority of Americans want to age in place and stay in our own homes. I am a disabled New Yorker. I am aging with a disability and due to uh, the consumer directed program and family caregivers, I am able to stay independent in my own home. Most recently, we reached out to folks in um, uh, apartment buildings, aging and uh, uh, disabled apartment buildings to talk to them about the relaunch effort and get people involved and excited again. Although we had such a, a we had uh, an unprecedented amount of money put towards uh, home care workers in New York State, it was not nearly enough. It is not livable wages. And um, also we have had some, uh, quite a few difficulties with the way that the, the money has not been given to the home care agencies and fiscal intermediaries to be able to pay out raises for home care workers. For, so even though they received a $2 an hour wage increase, many home care workers in New York actually saw that their um, insurance, their health insurance premiums went way up or their coverage went way down or vacation pay is no longer available or overtime is no longer available or their hours are being cut to afford this $2 an hour wage, which does not lift people out of poverty. So our goal this right. session is to fight for livable wages. It's fair pay for home care workers. So Caring Majority is touring the state of New York and meeting with home care workers, meeting with family caregivers, meeting with people who receive care to make sure that we are ready to hold Governor Hochul accountable and demand livable wages for home care workers. Julie Farrar with me, Blaze Bryant here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So the livable wage, it's looking like this, $22.50, correct, and also have the home care worker wage tied to inflation? Absolutely. It just makes sense. It, it's 150% of, of minimum wage, and that is not uniform throughout the state. But it, it yes, it, it is $22.50 an hour. This is enough to lift people out of poverty. This is enough so that home care workers can have their own form of reliable transportation. They can afford to pay rent. They can afford to pay their mortgage. They can put a roof over their own heads. They can feed their own families. That is what we need. We need the infrastructure to provide livable wages so that home care is a field that people want to go into. And also for family caregivers who may have to give up um, their own careers in order, in order to care for, say, an adult disabled child 
or for aging parents that they are not forced into poverty as well. For sure. Now, as a disabled New Yorker, you do have supports, but both of us know just from doing this sort of work in the field, not everyone has the necessary long-term services and supports to succeed. If you didn't have these supports, such as the Consumer Director Personal Assistance Program that you talked about, where essentially you get to be in control of who takes care of your needs, what would hap- What would life look like for you? Well, I actually had kind of a good indicator of that. Unfortunately, over the past few years with uh, COVID, um, during COVID, I acquired, um, I, I developed a hospital acquired infection. And I actually live with chronic illness, chronic life-threatening illness. And uh, during COVID, every six to eight weeks, I was ill with sepsis and had to go into the hospital, which was very traumatic. Uh, Also, it was very dangerous because I have a compromised immune system and I was going into the hospital simply because I had to have a 10-day regimen of IV antibiotics. And I know that that, uh, from the bills that I received that that was about $125,000 just for the hospitalization portion of, of the, um, the services that I received in the hospital. Uh, I was able to qualify for, for consumer-directed home care. I was able to qualify for long-term care services in the home because I, I was no longer able to work. I became impoverished, which again is a big problem that we have. You shouldn't have to become impoverished in order to receive home care. But my daughter thinks, uh, because of family caregivers, and at the time she was an unpaid family caregiver, I was able to have IV antibiotics administered at home. And it was a much safer environment for me. It cost a lot less to the taxpayers. And um, that is what I, I would be doing would be, I would be living in with a lot of anxiety and living in fear because I was going every six to eight weeks to the emergency room, sitting there sometimes for for a couple of days, and then being admitted to the hospital for 10 days. So I'm actually saving the taxpayers money right now, and I'm in a much safer situation. And I have family caregivers who have been trained to provide IV antibiotics so that I can stay home and stay healthy. So you're saving the taxpayers money. And I am and getting- staying home. Yes. Right. How does everyone not win? And why is this not a reality for everyone? Uh, well, I like to refer to it as um, the commodification of disability. And uh, there are other groups that are stronger lobbying groups, and they tend to represent facility-based care. Um, they there, so there is sometimes this kind of perverse, there's a perverse incentive right now, to be very honest, to fill those 15,000 nursing home beds that were left empty by when COVID just ran through like wildfire and killed tens of thousands of New Yorkers in institutions because there is no ability to do infection control there. 
And so it's, it, it's, um, it, to me, it's, it's criminal that people don't have the ability to choose where they receive their long-term care and they, that we don't have the infrastructure that we need to enable all New Yorkers to age in place. In the final minute that we have left here, how can people get involved in the fair pay for home care fight? I would say to um, look up New York Caring Majority and find out what we're doing. We're on Facebook and you can look up New, New York Caring Majority uh, org and uh, find out what we're doing and get involved. We're really encouraging people who receive home care or who provide home care to tell their personal stories so that the legislators understand that there are real people and real stories and real constituents behind the need to, to support home care and to provide livable wages for home care workers. Julie Farrar from the New York Caring Majority. I'm sure we will be having many more conversations about fair pay as we go along here. Thank you so much for giving us a few minutes of your time. Thank you for your time, Blaze. For Blaze's earlier stories on the campaign for fair pay for home care workers, visit our website, mediasanctuary.org. Blaze will continue to report on this and related topics as issues develop. Absolutely. Again, the Caring Majority website is nycaringmajority.org. A couple of other things, just because we have a little bit of time here, that uh, Julie and I were not able to get into. Our Governor Hochul has about a 70-plus foot long list of recipients, home care recipients, who cannot find home care. This is her, uh, Governor Hochul's, I cannot find home care list as well as a postcard campaign where the goal is to send Governor Hochul 10,000 business cards by uh, March to, again, raise awareness about the home care crisis, leading the nation home care crisis New York faces as we shift from home care to home ownership. In this 2021 Archives segment, Mark Dunley talks with Virginia Rollins, the founder of Building Blocks Together, about the organization's um, assist uh, the organization which assists low-income individuals with buying uh, with buying and rehabbing homes in communities usually redlined by banks such as the South End of Albany. Rollins founded the group after she worked with the Albany County Land Bank. Now you can hit the clip, Cena. We're joined today by Virginia Rollins, uh, who is the um, head of Building Blocks Together, which uh, helps uh, individuals with, with home ownership, particularly in uh, low-income uh, communities. So, Virginia, can you give us a little background as to you know why did you uh, start the Building Blocks Together? Yeah, of course. Um, so I was at the land bank actually, um, and people were enticed by the, the low uh, purchase prices for the land bank properties, not realizing that um, most of the properties take at least um, fifty thousand to seventy-five thousand to bring up, you know, bring up to code. Um, so they ran into issues just with access to capital, um, and then I just noticed that just the basic 
uh, documents that were needed for any home ownership transaction, people were not ready to produce. Um, so I, I created Build a Blocks to kind of fill that gap um, and act as a resource for minority communities um, for homeownership education, as well as um, financial resources. Now, I encountered you, uh, particularly working with uh, in the south end of Albany. Is, is Albany your target area or are there other communities in the Capital District uh, that you assist um, potential homeowners with? So um, currently I'm administering a first-time homebuyer grant um, made possible through the TUI um, Foundation. Um, and I'm actually able to help um, people throughout the whole entire capital region. Um, but I do think uh, since inception, my focus has been um, Albany. Hmm. And, and you mentioned the uh, land bank. Um, could you, I don't know, maybe quickly just give that information for people not familiar with that. And yeah. does your program still connect with the land bank or is it, you know, a broader at this point? Yep. So the Albany County Land Bank um, basically returns tax foreclosed properties back to the tax rolls. Um, so instead of the public auction where you can come and bid and just place cash, um, the land bank kind of acts as uh, the broker, if you will. Um, but in doing so, they want to make sure that people who are applying for these properties have like the actual financial capacity um, you know, to purchase and rehab the properties. Um, and then, yes, we still, I still have a good working relationship with the land bank. Actually, I think I have like three or four clients from them who's in the process of getting the first time home buyer grant. Um, so we're definitely in contact, um, you know, passing resources back and forth. So can you maybe walk us through, you know, somebody contact you, you know, how does this whole process work for them? Yep. So for the grant specifically, um, you, the, all the information's online, um, but you, if you're a first time home buyer, um, you're African-American, and you're looking to purchase within the capital region, essentially you qualify for the grant. Um, but they would contact me, I would give them those same screening questions, um, send them the application, and then they will start the process from there. Now, when you say the grant, if it, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of times you bring these houses up to code, mm -hmm. you know, may cost forty, fifty thousand dollars What What does the grant actually cover? Uh, so the grant covers down payment assistance and closing cost assistance. Um, unfortunately, um, the grant doesn't cover rehab costs at this time, um, but there is other grants um, like from the city of Albany, um, HAP and HOAP um, that do actually cover rehab windows. Um, so there are other there are other funding sources that can be stacked um, and utilized to kind of get these properties, specifically the tax foreclosed ones, uh, you know, occupied again. Now, are there, um, you know, other programs to assist people, um, particularly I know a lot of these type of programs in the past, you know, have looked at the issue of sweat equity, trying to help people who, you know, end up doing a fair amount of the work themselves, you know, doing any type of training or, you know, volunteers with other groups like Habitat for Humanity to get people in to help out with the rehab? So typically, I'm actually in the process of rehabbing a, a land bank property myself. Um, so typically, once you buy, um, the onus is on you as the buyer to get it done. Um, hopefully, right, the idea is that you go in, you know, eyes wide open, knowing that, you know, if, especially if you're not a contractor or have access to those resources, you know, available, you know, you, you do plan to hire a contractor with the correct insurances and things like that. So how many uh, how long has the program been running and, and how many, um, you know, families have you been able to help so far? 
Um, so building blocks started, I started building blocks in 2018. Um, I actually went full time like this just this past August. Um, but I have been blessed. Um, so far, uh, we have created 72 new home buyers, and that's just through the grant. Um, next year, we do plan to launch our one on one program. So helping with um, building credit, building savings, um, you know, going through the buyer affordability. Um, so we do um, hope to kind of create more home buyers in, in a different pipeline starting next year as well. And what are some of the problems, um, you know, particularly, you know, people in low income communities, you know, like the South End of Albany, you know, face and actually getting, you know, say loans or other uh, investments from, from, from banks and others? Yeah, I, I would say that, unfortunately, um, the banks are still slow to lend, um, especially in the areas that were previously redlined, uh, which kind of makes my work even all that much more important. Um, so people are, in my experience, are not getting the loans that they want to get, especially if we're talking about um, these tax foreclosed properties. I think the pandemic market on the other side, we're talking about turnkey properties, um, depending who, who you talk to, ha is a little bit better. Um, to get access to financing. Um, and then I think just generally speaking, uh, minority homebuyers are facing, you know, credit issues. They're not aware of what's on their credit, how to rebuild their credit um, savings. A lot of people, you know, unfortunately, we were disproportionately affected by coronavirus and losing our jobs. So a lot of people now, they're not going to make that two-year requirement that the bank is looking for uh, in terms of employment. So that's also another issue. Um, and then I would just say, and I tell a lot of people, and they're like surprised by this, but it's confidence. I think some people, I want to say half and half, some people are 100% ready to move forward in the home buying process when I initially speak with them, but they lack the confidence and they feel like they aren't ready. But that's why Building Blocks is here to kind of give people uh, that confidence, that, that push forward to kind of to home ownership. Are there similar programs, you know, elsewhere? Is this sort of a, a new idea you came up with, you know, based on your work, uh, particularly with the land bank? Um, so there's similar programs. I think the close, the most closely related program would be like AHB, um, Trip and Troy, BCNI, and um, Schenectady. Um, I think the difference, though, um, and why I've been so successful so far is that I'm very community oriented, right? So I'm very heavy in the community. I'm trying to meet individuals where they are. Uh, my accessibility is unprecedented at this point. Um, just so, you know, as I grow, people know what Building Blocks is and they know, you know, where the resources are. Even though those other organizations exist and have existed for quite some time, you know, people are coming to me, this newly formed company, to say, where are all these resources? How can I get to homeownership? How can I get some help? Right. So, and I think part of that is me making myself accessible and putting myself in front of people. Now, people interacting with you is, you know, your services covered by a grant or they pay a fee? How does that work? Uh, so for the Building Blocks 101 program, um, they would come out of pocket. Um, the grant does have an application fee, uh, but the grant is funded through um, another organization. So there are some fees associated with um, the one-on-one -on -one work um, program and um, workshops that I'm also going to launch. Right. Um, now, I know that not only people in the South End, but also Arbor Hill, West Hill, have been really have been pushing the uh, city of Albany to allocate, I think, $20 million for, you know, various home programs in these communities uh, out of the federal COVID relief funds. Uh, the city did allocate some money, but a lot less. 
uh, than people have been requesting. Um, how is that going to, if at all, going to impact on the work that you're doing? Access to resources from the municipality has been an issue in uh, minority homeownership. Um, it will continue to be an issue if the municipality at the state, the city level, the county level doesn't allocate the adequate resources. So I think it just makes my work a little bit harder, right? But I think we're still going to get it done. Uh, we've been getting it done. I'm a one-man show as it stands right now. Um, I am looking to scale. Um, so I think the beauty of Building Blocks is that we're not a nonprofit, so we can operate in a way where we're self-sustaining. But that's not to say that the municipality um, shouldn't be responsible for, you know, allocated, again, the adequate resources that Building Blocks need, AHP, BCNI, all the organizations trying to do this work. Uh, everybody needs funding. So it's going to impact us. But again, we've been getting it done and we'll continue to get it done. Okay, we're out of time. We've been talking with Virginia Rollins. Buildingblockstogether.com has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. This interview first aired a year ago. For more information about the variety of help available for home buyers and homeowners, that website again is buildingblockstogether.com. Finally, since we do not have Hugh Johnson with us, this past weekend was the Interfaith Holiday Justice and Peace Circle at Freedom Square, which ended with the community or with the community coming together and lighting candles around a decorated evergreen tree. Our very own Sina Bazila Hickey shares with us what the community has been grateful for. I light this candle for. The light that shines in the midst of the darkness. Light is one of the most powerful things that's in creation. And so no matter how dark it gets, continue to let your light shine. I like this kind of for all the people that are in the dark right now that don't have hope. I like this kind of for peace. I like this kind of for those who may be going through mental healing. Pass it on. What do you like your candle for? I like this candle for my family my and my friends, my grandparents, and also my grandparents that passed. Okay. I like this candle for peace. For peace. For peace. For peace. For peace. For peace. I like this candle uh, for healing. Yeah. For healing. I light this candle in the spirit of hope, the enemy of apathy. I light this candle for anybody who lost their life from gun violence. I light those can light this candle for those falsely incarcerated. I light this candle for anybody struggling with depression. I light this candle for anybody that has, anybody that has autism. I light this candle for life. I like this candle for world peace and world love. World peace and world love. I like this candle as a symbol or a beacon. So when things get rough, I always have something in front of me to look forward to strive to. I like, I like this candle for the power of community. I like this candle for healing. I like this candle for empowerment. And I like this candle because of all of you, for your souls, and you make this happen. Thank you for being here. Yes. Thank you. Oops. Uh, 
I light this candle for the people of Puerto Rico um, who are suffering without uh, electricity since Katrina. And I also light this candle for the people who just um, went through the shooting in uh, the gay club recently and for the people who are suffering from the, ter the domestic terrorist attacks and the gay and trans community. I light this candle for the next generation and hopefully the generation after that. I light this candle for people who are struggling with sickness and um, with hope that they can get better. Uh, yep. I light this candle for those who have lost their lives too soon and so they know that their light still shines. I light this candle in appreciation for the blessings that we have, but also so that this light will remind us of who we are, what we have, and what we can share with others. It occurs to me that when we share light like this, that nothing gets lost, but there is more of it and it warms us all. So I light this candle for love, which like light, when we share it, there's just more of it. So for love for one another, for love for this community, for love for this earth. I light this candle to manifest world peace and I light it for uh, my ancestors, especially my mom and uh, for joy. this candle for the pursuit of happiness for a free press we have more press in the world where it's pretty gloomy and uh, yeah for love in general I like this candle in the spirit of healing and compassion for the earth and all beings and I like this candle in gratitude to the sanctuary and WOC and they didn't pay me to say that. <laughs> and I light this candle to the memory of Megan Marone. Okay. I light, I light this candle for those suffering with gender, gender identity issues and those who are supporting them. Um, I, I light this candle to remind us that when our light goes out, um, other people can help us renew it like we are doing around this circle. I light this candle for the joy of kirtan, mm. a form of chant where um, it's a call and response chant, and it it's a, a total joy to do. It's a form of prayer, and any form of prayer is good. Yeah. Any religion, yeah. any form of prayer is good. I like this candle for community yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and compost. <laughs> I like this candle for all of us who struggle and fight for justice and for the earth that it be protected for future generations and for all that are inhabiting it right now. I like this view. Yeah. 
I light this candle for creative resistance in this blessed moment of now. Woohoo! I like this candle for freedom. Okay. <laughs> um, I like this candle for my family who I'm leaving for college soon. Okay. And, okay. Yeah. and for prosperity okay. for them. Yeah. For as long as I live and longer than that as well. Okay. Beautiful. More? <laughs> Alright. We sacrificed its life for it to be here lighting. Right then. Y'all, we gonna, we gonna say uh, this little light of mine, if y'all don't mind. Let the neighborhood hear us. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, put your chest in. Our lights will shine yes, to, to not just this generation, but the generations to come. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Peace and blessings to everyone. Uh, everyone, I just want to say something real quick. And um, first of all, thank everyone for coming out in the cold weather and um, getting together and continuing to support us. But I want to end by saying service to others is the price we pay for our room here on earth. Mm. So I light this candle for the light that has been lit. And for all of y'all who have lit this candle, I light this candle for you. And I thank God for each and every one of you to continue to serve, to empower people, to make productive and significant changes in their life to overcome their adversity. Come on. I like this candle. Specialist. Specialist. Yeah. I love like this candle. And that is the community coming together at the Freedom Square, sharing what they are thinking about, not what they are grateful for. Bria, what are you lighting your candle for as I light mine for an equal world for all? The continuing struggle for economic justice, environmental justice, social justice, and gender justice. So many topics to respect and keep the fire burning for. That was the ending activity at this past weekend's Interfaith Holiday Justice and Peace Circle. You may have heard camera clicks from photographers H. Bosch Jr. and Robert Cooper. You can find their photos on our website, mediasanctuary.org. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Bria Barthel. And I'm Blaze Bryan. What the community is thinking about really is why we do this show. And uh, to get involved, mediasanctuary.org. You can find us on most podcast platforms. Our engineers, the incredible Zena Bazila Hickey. We are off the next two weeks. So Bria and I will be back with you on January 9th, which is a Monday. And you can hear shows live Mondays at 6 or replays at 7 a.m. and 9 a.m. in the morning. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And tune in weekdays. We appreciate you listening. 